0: Edward Snowden, The Confidential Mystery Tour, today, Monday, June 24th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange says he knows where NSA leaker Edward Snowden is and that he's safe and in good spirits. We'll hear why Ecuadorian President Rafael Correa is so keen to give asylum to professed whistleblowers like Assange and Snowden, even as he cracks down on the news media at home. Local journalists have a
1: very hard time doing any sort of investigative reporting. They're being sued for libel and thrown in jail. Korea berates the press at every opportunity. He calls them scoundrels and
0: assassins. Also today, China's role in Snowden's flight from Hong Kong, and later, the cultural hazards of upending your alphabet. It's a very touchy issue. We'll hear what happens when a country changes its writing system.
2: PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World What a wild couple of days it's been for Edward Snowden. He's the former NSA contractor who leaked information about U.S. government surveillance programs. Snowden's wanted by the U.S. government for espionage. And yesterday he left his hideout in Hong Kong on a flight for Russia. Then today at the Moscow airport, he was booked on a flight leaving for Cuba, but the flight took off without him on board. Meanwhile, Ecuador is considering a request to grant Snowden political asylum. More about that in a few minutes. Ecuador is already giving refuge to another wanted man, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. And earlier today, Assange spoke from inside Ecuador's embassy in London, where he's been given shelter. Assange made it clear that WikiLeaks is helping Snowden because he's a fellow anti-secrecy whistleblower.
3: Place and his spirits are high due to the bellicose threats coming from the U.S. administration. We cannot go into further details at this
0: time. As the headline in the New York Times today put it, WikiLeaks gets back in the game. That story was written by Scott Shane, and Scott joins me now. First of all, Scott, how is WikiLeaks actually helping Edward Snowden?
3: Well, according to Julian Assange, WikiLeaks founder... Snowden approached the group. We're not exactly sure how apparently after he was already in Hong Kong and asked for their help and legal advice and the WikiLeaks legal team, they refer to it. And it that's a little bit uh, mysterious as to who's exactly on it. Uh, went to work advising him on places to seek asylum and made contact in particular with Ecuador you know, WikiLeaks had good connections with Ecuador to help Mr. Snowden.
0: So, I mean, they they they've played no role in Snowden's disclosure of classified documents, it seems. So it's your understanding that they're kind of simpatico with him and kind of working as a travel agency advisor. Exactly.
3: I think the as as far as I know and as far as Assange has said uh, in a conversation I had with him yesterday, they did not play any role in publishing or obtaining the Snowden documents. But once he sort of found himself, uh, in a bit of a predicament, that's when he apparently made contact with the WikiLeaks
0: organization. What's in it for WikiLeaks?
3: Well, WikiLeaks was founded in 2006 and got relatively little attention until Private Bradley Manning, that Army intelligence analyst in Iraq, decided that he was unhappy with some of the documents he was seeing and began feeding them to WikiLeaks. And in 2009, 2010, when those were published, including by my newspaper, the New York Times, they made a huge splash and they kind of put WikiLeaks on the map. Julian Assange became a bit of a, of a celebrity. Since then, their profile has been much lower. They have continued to put out some documents from time to time, but none of them has had quite the impact of those Bradley Manning documents. Snowden obviously had made a very big splash. And so for WikiLeaks... This was a bit of an opportunity to share the limelight with him and to sort of um, pronounce common cause with him. He, He certainly approves of the WikiLeaks sort of philosophy that governments are too secret, that they're doing things that if we knew about them, we the citizens knew about them, we wouldn't like, and therefore they should be made known.
0: As long as WikiLeaks has people like Manning and Snowden, you know whistleblowers at an industrial scale, it's got import and weight and gets attention. Without high high-profile defectors, you know, for lack of a better word, is WikiLeaks still relevant?
3: Well, I mean, you know, without without people willing to feed fresh information to the New York Times, uh, are we relevant? You know, I mean, every media organization obviously depends on sources, and you know, one of the interesting Points about Edward Snowden, this NSA contractor, is that in in recent months there's been a lot of discussion in the community of national security reporters here in Washington about how the series of leak prosecutions by the Obama administration, Snowden being the seventh, was chilling exchanges between government officials and reporters. More officials were reluctant to even get close to a sensitive subject for fear of getting in trouble. And so the the whole discussion was about how this was, in a way, working on behalf of the government, or at least those people in the government who wanted to chill those exchanges and keep the number of disclosures about national security programs down. Uh, but in fact, Snowden seems to be, you know, with Snowden, this seems to have backfired because these kind of hero leakers, martyrs that have been created by the crackdown on leaks, were perhaps the reason that Edward Snowden decided to go public with his documents.
0: That was Scott Shane of The New York Times speaking with us from the Times Bureau in Washington. Snowden's flight from Hong Kong to Russia took place despite an official American request for his extradition. Secretary of State John Kerry said today that it would be deeply troubling if authorities in Hong Kong had ignored those requests. Kerry also warned of consequences for U.S.-China relations. But according to the world's Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing, it's not clear who gave the go-ahead for Snowden to travel.
4: There's been a lot of speculation that the Chinese leadership must have been involved. They must have sent a signal. But thus far, there's been no absolute confirmation that the OK came from Beijing. There is officially uh, one country, two systems, and the Hong Kong judicial system functions semi-independently. The Hong Kong officials say, we didn't have sufficient information to make a decision that we would extradite him. The U.S. obviously is very unhappy with that, strongly disagrees. Hong Kong could come back and say, you know, an entity, a country or a territory gets to decide whether they want to extradite as a case in point. Canada held Lai Changsing, a billionaire who was wanted by China for corruption, for years. They allowed him to live there before they finally extradited him back. So it's not unprecedented that just because someone gets an extradition request, they wouldn't necessarily fulfill it immediately.
0: Now, John Kerry said it was deeply troubling that the extradition requests uh, by the U.S. were ignored. Uh, what What do you think is the most troubling part of this for the U.S.?
4: For those who want to see Snowden prosecuted, it's that it's not going to be as straightforward as they might have thought it was going to be in making the request to Hong Kong. But, I mean, the information is out. A conversation, a debate has, has been started in the United States about this and now elsewhere as well. I mean, certainly one lasting ramification of this is that the Chinese government, which has been somewhat restrained in its public rhetoric of, around this issue actually, mm. very interestingly, um, has nonetheless made the point of, you know, we'd been saying all along that we're a victim of this as much as anything else and that we don't support surveillance, which of course, you know, I mean, the Chinese are known to do surveillance themselves, but this has been the official line. And they've said, as their official statement, you know, we would like to have a discussion on this issue and try to be more constructive in how we deal with each other on the way forward.
5: And
0: what do Chinese uh, have to say about this? I mean, I saw one legislator in Hong Kong who was singing Snowden's praises Is that echoed across uh, society.
4: Snowden is considered a hero in much of China, and actually in much of Hong Kong. There have been people on China's version of Twitter called Weibo who have been comparing the help that he received to get from Hawaii to Hong Kong, Hong Kong to Russia, as being like Operation Yellow Bird. Now, Operation Yellow Bird was the operation that helped Tiananmen pro-democracy protesters escape China after the military crackdown in 1989. And this is appearing on China's Weibo, on China's version of Twitter, Inside China, and the comments are not being taken down.
0: The World's Mary Kay said, speaking with us from Beijing. Thank you. Thanks, Marco. Another country where Edward Snowden appears to have supporters is Ecuador. As I mentioned earlier, the South American nation says it's considering Snowden's request for asylum. This is the same country that's sheltering WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange inside its embassy in London. Ecuador's foreign minister has hinted that his government is inclined to help Snowden, even at the risk of angering the United States. Reporter John Otis is following the story from Bogota, Colombia. He says Ecuador's leftist government has a history of clashing with the U.S., President Rafael Correa, he was first elected back in
1: 2007. Uh, He expelled uh, U.S. military bases from Ecuador. He was also very friendly with uh, Venezuela's Hugo Chavez. And now that Chavez has died, Correa kind of sees himself as an emerging leader of the left-wing bloc in Latin America. And of course, there's the connection with Julian Assange, whom he offered asylum to uh, about a year ago.
0: We're talking a, a story with international dimensions, though. I mean, does Korea uh, have uh, this intense interest in jabbing the U.S. in the ribs and why?
1: Well, Marco, Correa is a very popular president. He just won a landslide reelection back in February. Ecuadorians really like him. He's probably the most popular president in about 30 years And sort of playing the left-wing leader and the guy willing to uh, strike out at the United States and defy what Washington wants, that plays well at home. Ecuadorians uh, really like Correa. Uh, A lot of them agreed with his decision to offer asylum to Julian Assange. And I think if Snowden ends up in Ecuador, many Ecuadorians will approve of that decision as well.
0: So it sounds like what you're saying is that it's not so much what Ecuador might get out of this apparent cooperation with Snowden and Assange. It's really... Uh, about Rafael Correa?
1: In a lot of ways, I think it is. Um, Rafael Correa is also trying to uh, play himself up as a a leader of free expression when ironically at home it's just just the opposite. His government has been brutal towards the media in Ecuador. Uh, The government, in fact, just 10 days ago passed a new communications law that sets out all sorts of new restrictions for journalists in Ecuador. So it's really not at all a bastion of freedom of expression in Ecuador.
0: When you were in Ecuador recently, did you uh, ha- have any personal experience with this uh, the, this tough uh, approach to press freedoms there?
1: It doesn't so much affect international journalists, but local journalists have a very hard time doing any sort of investigative reporting. They're being sued for libel and thrown in jail Uh, Correa berates the press at every opportunity, he calls them scoundrels and assassins. Um, And again, there's been a whole uh, array of new legal measures to clamp down on any sort of serious reporting in Ecuador. It's it's really a very serious situation. He's done uh, much more in Ecuador in the course of four or five years than Chavez did in Venezuela in the course of 14 years against the press.
0: What do Correa's critics uh, in in Ecuador have to say about him and his whole kind of involvement in in the WikiLeaks, Assange, and uh, now apparently Snowden business?
1: The critics in Ecuador um, pretty much go along with the United States line that they shouldn't allow Snowden into the country because he's wanted for espionage in the United States. They see it as complicating the already tense relations between Ecuador and the United States uh, the United States is Ecuador's leading trade partner, and they're worried that uh, Ecuador will lose uh, trade preferences with the United States as well. Korea's critics would like to see a smoother relationship with the United States. Uh, the two countries recently just reestablished uh, full diplomatic relations after Korea had kicked out the United States ambassador a couple of years ago. and They'd like to keep things going on a smoother track.
0: Do you see that happening now?
1: It looks difficult. Uh, Correa said on Twitter this morning that he was going to make the decision about Snowden based on total sovereignty for Ecuador.
0: You know, he you mentioned his tweeting. He's been he seems to be tweeting uh Re- President Rafael Correa fairly regularly about uh, the the Snowden case. Um is he relishing this? Yeah, Marco, I think Correa
1: really is relishing this because it puts him back in the international headlines. And it also uh, makes him stand out as the left-wing leader in Latin America, willing to stand up to Washington.
0: All right. John Otis in Bogota, Colombia. Thanks for giving us the uh, angle on, on Ecuador here. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks a lot, Marco.
0: Still to come on The World, stalking the perfect dosa on PRI, Public Radio International.
1: The world is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Imagine the people of country X have been accustomed to writing their language a certain way for centuries, and then in a relatively short period of time, Things change, and they start using a different writing system or a script. Sounds pretty radical, doesn't it? Well, the world's language editor, Patrick Cox, is here to tell us about script reform. And Patrick, the broad strokes of this, I just can't imagine this happening with English-speaking countries. So just how often does a language end up with a different
6: script? It happens very rarely because it is, as you say, such a huge wrench. I like to think of it as, you know, switching your currency, maybe switching the side of the road that you drive on and maybe also throw in your national anthem and your flag all on the same day. Wow. So no chance really of this happening with English. No, English is a completely uncontrollable language at this stage. Just imagine putting together the governments of the United States, Canada, Britain, Ireland, Australia, the list goes on, India, and having them come up with a compact to do something with the script, like say, I don't know, get rid of the letter Z and replace it with hashtag or something like that. It's just not going to happen. I seem to recall that Germany had some weird letter that they changed around. They, there was a script adjustment at some point. That's right. Yeah, in 1996, they had uh, a script reform. And, and in fact, Germany did get together with other German-speaking countries to implement this. The big headline of the script reform was, was reducing the usage of this letter that they call S-Z. Do you know it? It's that double S.
0: Yeah, I always wondered whether I should say S or B or
6: what. Right. Kind of looks like a capital B with the, the bottom bit left open. But the problem with that was that German people generally did not accept it. Uh, Gunther Grass refused to have his books published in, under the newly reformed script, and several newspapers just ignored it. But there are languages, I
0: believe, and we're about to hear about one of them, that have made changes, and those changes apparently have stuck.
6: That's right. I mean, Vietnamese did it in 1918. They changed from a mainly Chinese character system to a largely Latin-based script. And yes, we're going to hear about two languages that had Arabic-based scripts. Uh, one of them, Turkish, changed its script. The other, Persian, has not. All right, Patrick. Thanks very much. Here's reporter Ashley Cleek with the story. Perfect.
7: On a Wednesday afternoon, seven students sit in a darkened classroom on the campus of Bosphorus University in Istanbul. They squint up at a projection of a 100 year old handwritten letter. It's in Ottoman Turkish, that is, Turkish written in the Arabic alphabet. Slowly, the students read the script aloud, right to left. When they get stuck, Professor Edhem Eldem writes the words on a chalkboard. It takes an hour and a half to read four pages. Ottoman Turkish looks nothing like today's Turkish. In the Arabic script, vowels are not marked. That's confusing enough in Turkish. But Arabic script doesn't differentiate consonant sounds like g and k. So, for example...
8: You may write in Ottoman Turkish something that can be read gel, come kel, bald...
7: Professor Eldem says those are two different words written exactly the same in the old script. And there are hundreds of examples like this. With the founding of the Turkish Republic in 1923, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk decreed an alphabetic revolution. The Arabic script of Ottoman Turkish was banned. And a new Turkish alphabet was invented based on Latin letters. Turkey's population was mostly illiterate. And the story goes that Ataturk traveled the countryside with a chalkboard teaching villages to read this new Turkish.
8: Turkish today is extremely phonetic. I mean, uh, if it's properly written, there's no way you can go wrong when reading a Turkish word.
7: And literacy did skyrocket. But Ataturk's alphabet revolution had another goal.
8: It it becomes also very symbolic in the sense that the Arabic script is the east, uh, the Latin script is the west kind of a divide, which is artificial. But still, if people believe in it, it's, it's a very touchy issue.
7: Professor Eldem says the rational side of him supports the Latin script.
8: And then again, I also am in a position to see to what extent the loss of that script has dispossessed Turks, especially students of history, of some kind of a contact with the past.
7: And it's true. Unless they study Ottoman Turkish, an educated Turk cannot read the inscription on their great-grandparents' headstones. What Turkey did was radical— It wasn't just a script change, it was a cultural shift. Only a handful of countries have attempted to remake their alphabet. Most have stuck with the script they have. Iran, for
3: example.
7: This is one of the dozen or so YouTube videos explaining what Persian would look like written in the Latin alphabet. Some websites have even transliterated Persian poems into a Latin-based script. Persian, like Ottoman Turkish, is written in a slightly modified Arabic script that was adopted around the 9th century when Persia converted to Islam. And like Turkish, some say it's not the best fit. Some vowels are not marked. There are two letters for the sound T, three letters for S, and four for Z. As a university student in Tehran in the 1970s and 80s, Hossein Sami dreamed of revolution. Linguistic Revolution.
5: We wanted to change the world. And uh, because we were students of linguistics, we want to do it in language.
7: Sami and his classmates argued for the adoption of the Latin script. Now, Sami is a lecturer in Persian at Emory University in Atlanta. With a soft salt-and-pepper mustache and worn orange polo shirt, he doesn't look much like a revolutionary anymore. Those were youthful ideas, Sami says. Now, he thinks the Persian alphabet's fine, just how it is. The script, says Sami, links Iran east to Afghanistan, south to India. It's a connection to history, to literature and art. Changing the script would not just mean reprinting books. It would place a barrier between the present and the past.
5: We we like our culture. We like our literature. We want to change, but we believe more in reform. Even this recent election shows
7: that. Instead, Sami says... He sees authors and bloggers reforming the Persian language. Some writers mark vowels to indicate the sound. Some add an extra letter to make a word more legible. Still, it's a real struggle compared to, say, reading in Turkish, especially for those outside Iran. Every evening at their home in New Zealand, Fariz Piruz and Medio Azadi sit with their daughter, Wiyana, and help her sound out words in Persian. Persian is Wiyana's native tongue, but her dad Medio says she has a hard time reading.
3: She's, she's still struggling, and I, I, would, I would tell you that that's my observation. She's struggling with connecting the words.
7: Medeo's a linguist, and he's frustrated with the Persian script, but he also sees it as an expression of national character. Iranian writers, he says, sometimes enjoy being purposefully unclear.
3: It's like the doctors writing the prescription I mean, it looks mysterious. If you're able to read the text, it means you're an insider. If you're not able to read it, you're an outsider.
7: But he wishes Iranians would get behind a few small reforms that would make the script clearer. That way, his daughter would be more likely to master it. For The World, I'm Ashley Cleek.
0: You can see what Persian and Turkish look like in their various written iterations at theworld.org. That's also where you'll find our podcast on language. The world in words. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead on the world, a young Indian American tastes his first dosa in the United States and realizes just because he's from India, it doesn't mean he knows everything about Indian food. And it was when I had a dosa in Manhattan one day that sort of blew me away.
9: It was a humbling and mind expanding experience. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic,
2: now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Here's a dilemma for you. Meat production is one of the biggest sources of the pollution that's disrupting the global climate. But meat production is also booming around the world. That's especially true in places like China, where millions more people every year can finally afford a source of protein. It's a symbol of wealth there. Well, it turns out there's also a growing countertrend, Chinese giving up meat and animal products altogether. The world's Mary Kay Magstad reports from Beijing in the latest part of our What's for Lunch series on food and and climate change.
4: Beijing's Ginkgo Tree Cafe fills up fast at lunchtime. With its vegan buffet and flavorful dishes, it offers all the taste but none of the meat that many Chinese love. My lunch companion, Long Quan was an early follower of urban China's growing vegan trend.
10: It started from when global warming was a big issue, and I looked into a lot of information about food's impact on the environment. I didn't know anything about it before. I was just loving the animals and didn't want to eat them.
4: When I first met Long Quan four years ago, she was a pop singer, pixie-faced in her late 20s with little pigtails, bringing to mind a Chinese Bjork. <laughs> this is a song she had out at the time called Lohas Queen, Lohas is short for lifestyles of health and sustainability. At the time, Longquan worried that time was running out. Global warming was happening fast, and people needed to change their lifestyles to stop it from getting worse. She'd read a UN report that said raising, slaughtering, and processing livestock produces more greenhouse gases than cars. She says that prompted her to take an extra step from being vegetarian to becoming vegan which, she says, is becoming a lot easier these days.
10: When you look into it, then you can find all ways to substitute and to make new recipes. And it's kind of fun. And now we have all kinds of things. We have vegan cheese, vegan milk, and vegan pizza, vegan ice cream. I can even buy them in Beijing.
4: Here at the Ginkgo Tree, all this talk of food makes us hungry, and we decide to order.
10: This is really good.
4: We opt for what the menu lists as lamb kebabs with cumin, fish with black bean sauce, a salad, spring rolls and rice, all vegan. Chinese vegetarian cooks have ingenious ways of making tofu taste like meat. Longquan celebrates having so many different flavors to choose from, with less harm to animals and the planet. She also celebrates that more Chinese seem to be sharing this diet.
10: Like, maybe 10 years ago, I have a lot of voices that says, like, why are you religious or something? But now it's completely different, and the young generation especially. They really, really care about the environment or quality of life, like pollution.
4: It certainly seems that way at a nearby organic farmer's market. It's packed on this sunny spring day, and the busiest booth is the vegan baker, Customer Huang wen Su, who works for a conservation group, says vegetarian diets are catching on.
10: A lot of my friends changed to uh, vegetarian. Not vegan yet, but vegetarian. And and you think? I guess it is healthier, but I like meat. (laughs)
4: And there's the challenge. Most Chinese just don't want to give up meat. It's considered a sign of prosperity. And some think you can't have a healthy diet without it. But the organizer of the farmers market, Tian La Chan, says you don't have to give up meat entirely to be environmentally responsible.
10: It's important to know where your meat is from, how it is produced. I believe that if animals are farmed in a more sustainable way, it actually benefits the environment. The animal manure and waste can be used to fertilize the soil.
4: Which would be an improvement over the chemical fertilizers and pesticides that now pollute China's groundwater and runoff into its rivers and the climate-damaging industrial farms that produce a rapidly growing share of China's
10: meat? So I wouldn't encourage people to be vegetarian, but I would encourage people to eat less meat, especially factory-farmed meat.
4: Longquan says that would be a good first step, one she's glad to see more people taking.
10: Because when the consciousness is changed, then everything follows, and the whole atmosphere of the country will be changed.
4: For now, just 4 or 5 percent of Chinese are thought to be vegetarian. That's still more than 50 million people a whole lot more vegetarians than there are in the United States. But Long Kwan thinks China can do better, and she stopped singing to focus on spreading the word. For The World, I'm Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing.
0: Our What's for Lunch series is part of Food for Nine Billion, a two year project of Homelands Productions and the Center for Investigative Reporting, with broadcast partners PBS NewsHour and American Public Media's Marketplace. Check out other stories from our series at theworld.org. We'd also love to know whether you're changing your diet in response to climate change. We've got some great photos of what some of you are doing and eating on Instagram. You can share yours with the hashtag. What's for lunch? That's what's, W-H-A-T-S, the number for lunch. What's for lunch? For our GeoQuiz now, we're looking for the name of a river that's flooding parts of the Canadian province of Alberta. This river begins with meltwater from a glacier in the northern Rocky Mountains. It runs right through the city of Calgary, the largest city in Alberta. In fact, massive flooding along this river's banks last week shut down much of Calgary, and people are still being warned to be careful as they return to properties that wound up underwater.
11: One of the things that people who are returning to their homes are being told is, If you step into your house and the first thing you have to do is go down into your basement and if you see water above your power outlet line, you have to get out. You can't even go back to your house because the risk of electrocution is so high. Um, But as a result, tens of thousands of people are even still without power even after the worst of the flooding's receded.
0: So can you name the river that's causing havoc in Calgary, Alberta? We'll get an update on the flooding in just a few minutes. Okay, I don't mean to stereotype, but you don't usually associate Buddhist monks with living the high life, let alone flying in conspicuous luxury on a private jet. You'd expect that from, I don't know, Russian oligarchs or pampered sports stars. And yet a video popped up recently from Thailand of Buddhist monks flying in their signature saffron robes and their rock and designer shades and top-of-the-line man bags. So who are these bling Buddhists? John Burdett is a best-selling author of crime novels set in Thailand, which often feature atypical Buddhists. Burdett lives in Bangkok, and he says it's not shocking that monks in Thailand are flying on private jets.
5: There's a strong sense, I suppose kind of a folk sense in Asia, that someone who is um, purified and close to enlightenment will always attract the best. So it's not the same um, violent contradiction between uh, money and spirituality that we have in the West. Although um, I confess that that argument doesn't apply that well to Buddhism when it's someone who's taken a vow of poverty.
0: Isn't the path to enlightenment through modesty and getting rid of possessions and living an ascetic life, not putting on aviator sunglasses?
5: That's one of the paths. um, But Asia has been religious for 5,000 years, and there are layers upon layers of this kind of thing. So uh, sometimes a spiritual person, I mean, let's take a neutral example like India, uh, someone who everybody acknowledges is enormously spiritual, people pile in donations because they think they'll make merit that way. And the same thing happens in Thailand. And there are very many wealthy Thais who are devout Buddhists and pile in huge sums of money into the monasteries. The way, if you want to contribute to Buddhism in Thailand, you contribute directly to your monastery, the monastery that you feel closest to. This chap that we see uh, in his designer sunglasses, in his jet, is also responsible for pulling in uh, huge amounts of donor money that um, rebuilt the monastery where he he is.
0: I mean, it's one thing to raise funds uh, and give it back to the monastery, but how do these monks justify that intellectually
5: uh, <laughs> you'd, you'd have to ask the monks i'm doing the best i can here you can't really justify it intellectually but you can understand it in the ter- in terms of a phenomenon which i say is uh, in fact worldwide you have tv evangelists in the states who i imagine sometimes get extremely rich um, the fact that it happened here in the context of Buddhism doesn't, I have to confess, it does make people shake their heads um, in sorrow, really, more than anything else, because Thais are very, very serious about their Buddhism. And to see someone, um, I and mean we don't know his side of the story yet, but to see someone who's taken a vow of poverty in a private jet, <laughs> wearing designer sunglasses. I mean, it's, I think it might be stretching even Thai patience, and that's saying something.
0: How have Thais reacted to this?
5: The general reaction is really one of um, sadness. You know, to be fair, there are more than 250,000 monks in Thailand and the vast, vast majority do assiduously follow a life of poverty and dedication to the Buddha and meditation. And the the society respects them enormously um, for that. And so do I, actually, because, I mean, they're the real thing. They're not evangelists, normally. Mm. They're just these guys who have decided on a spiritual path and given up everything for that reason.
0: I mean, it it has turned troublesome for them. Last year, I I gather 300 Buddhist monks were reprimanded for drinking alcohol and and having sexual relations with women.
5: Well, yeah, the other side of it, of course, is that... um, there's a big um, tradition in Thailand that a a son will enter the monkhoods for um, three months. And um, out in the country, there's still the superstition that if a son does that, then when the mother dies, she will be able to grasp the skirts of his robes and be swept into nirvana. Hmm. In other words, we have a very powerful mother-son compulsion into the uh, sangha, for three months. And naturally, in those kinds of situations, as I say, with 250,000 monks in Thailand, not everyone is going to be perfect.
0: Novelist John Burdett's latest book is Vulture Peak. He's been telling us about Buddhist bling in Thailand. He's been speaking with us from Bangkok. John, thanks so much. Thank you. To see the video of those Thai monks, just go to theworld.org. Now, back to Canada and some major flooding that's affecting people in the provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan. One of the rivers that's bulging out of its banks is the Bow River, which is the answer to our geo-quiz, by the way. Bow, B-O-W. The Bow River runs right through Calgary, Alberta, and the flooding there has affected many residents. But the impact isn't restricted to Calgary's city limits. Jan Gerson is covering the story for Canada's National Post newspaper.
11: All of the province, all of the south of the province has been affected by flooding. Right now, the river tsunami, uh, for lack of a better term, is centered in the Medicine Hat area, where, where I've just returned from. But there's still massive flooding in Calgary. There are still massive cleanups going on. Right now, the level of the water in Calgary is still about two times higher than the worst flooding in recent memory, which is back in 2005. The the red levels and the flows of the rivers are still extraordinarily
0: high. Right, because I've seen some photos taken from helicopters showing the downtown flood, and it's kind of unbelievable for a city of a million plus how's it affected the residents there
11: oh it's been enormous it's an, i don't think there's a single resident who has not been affected some way about 10% of the of the city was asked to evacuate their homes and really the astonishing number of those is of the about 75 to 100,000 people who were told you got to get out now of them only about 1500 used the city's evacuation centers Which means just about everybody else has been bunking down with friends and family. So, you know, if you weren't evacuated yourself, you knew someone who was evacuated, or you knew someone who had lost power, or you had lost power, or you were putting up someone who had lost power. So, everyone got affected. All the schools have been canceled. And a lot of workplaces have just shut down for probably the rest of the week.
0: For the forced evacuees, what kind of damage will they be returning to uh, their homes? I mean, will they be livable again or not really?
11: Depends on how close to the river you were. A lot of people are returning to basements with four, five, six feet of water in the basement. And some people are coming back to an inch of water in the basement. And some people are coming back and, you know, by the grace of God, they they were spared. It's all over the show. It's a total mixed bag.
0: Now, you talked about power outages. I'm wondering how much power has been out because uh, it might affect the very busy oil industry there in Calgary.
11: Pretty much all of the uh, towers downtown house the oil and gas industry, which is, of course, uh, the major driver of this province's uh, economic wealth, they were just told, or all, the entire downtown section was just told, y- you have no power, your substations are underwater, your electrical outlets are in parking garages underneath the water line, you have to stay home and work from home.
0: Has anyone died from this flooding yet?
11: As of yesterday, the RCMP had confirmed three deaths in High River and one confirmed death in Calgary. I suspect that the death toll will rise as cleanup continues. However, uh, considering the severity and the speed of these floods, it's amazing that the death tolls are as low as they are.
0: I know human safety is the most important priority here. But uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, Calgary is going to hold this thing called the Stampede. It's the world's biggest rodeo, uh, allegedly. I gather that might be a challenge to actually pull that off.
11: Well, considering every single part of the Stampede Grounds is uh, under several feet of water and mud, yes, it definitely will. The Saddle Dome, which is our main hockey arena and events arena, flooded up into about the 8th row. The Rodeo Grounds, where we held the races, Bronco, Bucking, and the whole deal. All of that's underwater. Cleaning that out in time for Stampede, which is fewer than two weeks away, is going to be an enormous task. But it's a very important event here in Calgary. It's very possible that it's going to be a very different Stampede than what we're used to. It's usually an extravaganza. Uh, It probably won't be quite the extravaganza this time, and it's definitely going to be muddy and mosquito-y. But uh, it's going to go go come hell or high water, I suspect. And that might, in fact, become the uh, motto.
0: Well, Jen Gerson with Canada's National Post newspaper, good luck and stay safe up there.
11: Thank you. Will do.
0: This is The World from PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Folks, fasten your seatbelts because we're headed to New York City for a dosa hunt. Dosas are a South Indian snack, sort of like a crepe or pancake. And the leader of our hunt is New Yorker Amrit Singh. He runs the indie music news site Stereogum, but lately he's turned to filmmaking to explore issues of identity for Indians in America. And what better way to do that than to embark on a quest for the perfect lentil rice pancake?
3: Hey, how's it going? Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, Just uh, in a van on a dosa hunt with a bunch of Indian dudes. Happens all the time.
0: The quest involved Singh and a group of his musician friends riding around New York in a decked-out van, complete with disco ball. All of it filmed to make a documentary called Dosa Hunt. I was five minutes into watching it and knew I was going to have to eat a dosa for lunch. Here's how Amrit Singh describes the film's culinary star. Dosa is a crepe or pancake-like
9: food made of a fermented rice and lentil batter. The
0: lentil is a black dal called
9: urad dal. And it's generally served with uh, a potato mixture that's spicy called alu masala and an assortment of uh, condiments that are called chutneys and a vegetable stew called sambar. It's also often served with something called milagapodi, which is really nice for the spice nuts out there. It's uh, roasted dried chilies, often some pepper and salt, and it's mixed into a mixture with uh, sesame oil generally, sometimes ghee, butter. But otherwise, it's a vegan dish. It's gluten-free and makes it a great dish for these times where everyone's discovering all their food allergies and restrictions.
0: Right. It seems fairly orthodox because uh, at one point, uh, Alan Palomo, the one Mexican guy in the group, talks about liking (laughs) his dosa. With cheese and everybody protests. Here's that scene. Not supposed
8: to have
5: cheese what? on it.
8: No, it's just untraditional. It's not traditional, but that doesn't mean it's
0: not good. Okay, so no cheese. So is is there kind of just a straight on way dosa is served?
9: Well, it's worth mentioning that Alan was along for the ride because uh, he was a neophyte. He had never had a dosa before. He is Mexican, as you'd mentioned, um, and his band is called Neon Indian. So we made him an honorary Indian for the day. Um, cheese typically is not an authentic portion of the uh, dosa experience. And that kind of set off the entire dosa hunt when Ross and Bat Manglage, who plays in the band called Vampire Weekend, tweeted about a dosa that he had. He tweeted very simply, eating a dosa. It came at a time when I was fetishizing the dish myself. I was on a dosa hunt. I'm North Indian and the food is South Indian. So I didn't grow up eating it. And I wrote back immediately. I asked him which kind. And he said, well, I'm having one that has arugula and jack cheese. (laughs) And uh, it's from the Hampton Chutney Company. And so now we have, and Rossam's Persian. So I'm like, well, we have a Persian American who's having a fusion dosa with cheese in it at a place named after the Hamptons you and this is an issue. We need to go for at some time.
0: Right. Well, it makes sense. I mean, the tagline for the film, though, is the greatest hunt for South Indian food in New York City ever committed to film. Isn't this the only <laughs> right.
9: hunt for South Indian food in New York City? <laughs> exactly. It's it's so bold. It's such a bold claim, but it makes it much easier given the fact that it is the only one that's ever happened.
0: As for the sambar, the sauce, uh, I want our listeners to hear at this point in the film where uh, Anand Wilder from the band Yesayer actually calls his mom to ask about one vegetable that you eat with sambar.
3: Mom, you're on speakerphone. Hello. Hello. Hello.
10: If you, uh, in India,
8: like in my house, we never have sambar without drumstick.
3: What's the actual vegetable
5: called? It's called drumsticks
0: yeah, It's called drumstick, but it's not chicken. And I, and I doubt, I don't know what it is, but I doubt it even tastes like chicken. So what the heck is a drumstick? <laughs> it's a really interesting
9: vegetable. It's kind of, it's, it's somewhat akin to okra. It's got somewhat of a husk. It's thrown into the sambar. It gives it a certain flavor and it's really fun to eat. Um, Yeah, and we found out that it was called Saragova in the grocery store. And this moment of confusion, this sort of cultural confusion was very much what the film was designed to do. I mean, this Dosa Hunt came about very organically from that Twitter exchange that I mentioned, Mm. which attracted members from Das Racist, Neon Indian, Yeser, Vampire Weekend. I myself run a website called Stereogum, which has been chronicling the rise of these bands for the last seven years. And, um, you know, I didn't grow up with people that looked like me in bands that I liked listening to. And I've often thought as these bands have come up and As I've developed friendships with them that now must be amazing to be a 15-year-old brown kid and see guys that are operating in the fields of hip-hop and jazz and synth rock and all that stuff um, and doing it so successfully. So getting us together felt momentous. Documenting it seemed like a natural idea. But the idea also was that this quest for this authentic dish would elicit the sorts of conversations – and issues of culture and identity in an organic way, the food really became the device. And so this conversation with Anand's mom wasn't scripted. It was very organic and natural to the day, Mm. but it was very much at the heart of what the film was trying to say.
0: I mean, you guys are all clearly obsessed with doses, but as you say, this is also really about identity. None of you have uh, Indian accents. You're all kind of hybrids, really. And you kind of cop to at the beginning of the film that you only recently discovered doses.
9: Yeah, I mean, so I grew up, In a North Indian family, my family was all born in Punjab and after partition had kind of moved to different parts of India. But that's where my family comes from and that's the food that I grew up eating. And it was when I had a dosa in Manhattan one day when I moved to Manhattan as a young adult that sort of blew me away. It was a humbling and mind-expanding experience this dosa was because – I realized that I'd been purporting to be an expert on Indian food, but really I'd conflated Indian with North Indian, as Mm -hmm. I think many people in the West have, because the sorts of waves of immigration that came over in the 60s when the visa rules had been sort of changed and allowed for immigration in a new way, were primarily coming from North India with respect to the South Asian continent. And people here just began to equate those. And now you're seeing Uh, sort of like zeitgeistical faddish approach to dosa, which is really great. And it's sort of expanding people's understandings of what Indian culture is. You know, that story is seen in my personal relationship to the culture too. So having this dosa as a young adult was like, I need to get more dosa. I need to know more about the country that I'm from.
0: Amrit Singh is the filmmaker behind the short documentary Dosa Hunt. Amrit, let's have uh, dosa together sometime. I think that'd be fun. Marco, I'd love to do that sometime. Let's do it. Could I have a masala dosa, one masala dosa, and one uh, sugarcane juice, please? For here, please, yeah. Yep, told you I was going to have dosa for lunch. (laughs) Got so inspired. And while I wait for my dosa, I want to pick up on that idea of hybrid Indians. So Amrit Singh is one example of how Indian culture gets hybridized here. Let me tell you about another example of an Indian in India who has invented an instrument that morphs Indian ragas with American slide guitar. His name is Debashish Bhattacharya, his instrument, the Hindustani slide guitar. Hey. Great taste, the vibrating sympathetic strings of the sitar combined with the infinite microtones eked out by a slide on a guitar fretboard. Think Memphis meets Mumbai. That's the sound Debashish Bhattacharya is known for. As part of our Global Nation coverage, we'll leave you with the track Kirwani 1.5 plus 8.5. As far as that dosa, I already ate it, and it was great. I've got visual proof on Instagram. You can follow me there, at Marco Werman. Same handle at Twitter, by the way. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow. The
2: World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Annenberg Foundation... And by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International